I want to read a little bit from this essay of uh, Longpur Pasano. Don't usually read up here. I usually talk, but I've been thinking about this this essay in the last week or so, and I want to share some of it with you. It's entitled, Are You Willing to Train? He says, in preparation for the upcoming ordinations, I've been reviewing the chanting parts of the ceremony. For novices, there are three refuges and 10 precepts, which are Sikapada, the foundation of training. For bhikkhus, there are the admonition and recollection that emphasize the purpose of going forth, the becoming a monk. To establish one in the training of higher virtue, higher mind, and higher wisdom. Sikha or Sikapada, the basis of training, is what the Buddhist path is all about. Virtue and wisdom cannot be conferred through some special relationship with the deity or higher being. One can't inherit these qualities just by being born into a certain religion or dispensation. The Buddhist teachings are entirely different from these approaches. We have a human birth that provides the opportunity to enter into and reap the benefits of training. But to take advantage of this opportunity, we need to do something more than just be born. The natural result of birth is death. It is an enlightenment or awakening. We must train ourselves to awaken. No one else can do it for us. The choice is ours. The tendency for most people is to create more problems and difficulties for themselves. That habit is one of the reasons Buddha was reluctant to teach. He could see that most people are obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, hurrying, and hastening through this round of rebirths. But the Buddha also recognized that there were those beings with little dust in their eyes who are willing to train and who would be lost without the opportunity to manifest the teachings. So what category do we want to fall into? Do we want to cultivate sila, samadhi, and panya, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the qualities and practices that lead to freedom? Or do we want to neglect inner development and just muddle along entangled and bound in ignorance? It's our responsibility to make that choice. Ajahn Shah, that, looking at me from the back wall, used to tell the Sangha that he was giving us a suitable environment to develop our own practice. He said, it's like providing a pasture for your cows. If there's a pasture that's fenced in and has plenty of grass, then the cows can eat the grass and also be safe. If they are cows, they will eat the grass. If they don't eat the grass, then they aren't cows. <laughs> Feeling pretty good? <laughs> they like the cows. In the same way, 
It's the nature of practitioners to practice and train. If they don't, maybe they're not practitioners. It's up to us to train and make some effort. We need to make clear in our own minds what we want to be doing. This cannot be emphasized enough. Training the mind requires a great deal of discipline and effort. It's not always easy to keep that up. The mind gets clouded with frustration, boredom, laziness, and all sorts of defilements. It's so easy to slip into wanting to ignore the training or feeling forced to carry it out because the ajans, the teachers, keep pestering us. Training the mind is not about trying to fulfill some duty perfunctorily. It's not an obligation to the precepts or training rules to some standard within a monastery or in a particular place. Such inclinations and approaches don't get us anywhere. They miss the point. So what is the point? The point is to take responsibility for ourselves. We need to recognize when the mind feels oppressed and resistant to training. We need to notice when the commitment to training feels overbearing or not worth the effort required. That awareness helps raise the energy in the mind and helps create a sense of spaciousness and ease. We can remind ourselves that training the mind is a rare and precious opportunity. We can reflect on our own good fortune to meet the Dhamma in this lifetime. We can then recommit to making good use of this opportunity. This is a great little book, <laughs> maybe six or seven essays. They're all quite practical, but serious. <clears throat> we started um, last week an intro to meditation course, a four-week course, meeting once a week on, on Mondays. And uh, it's been, I've been teaching the class on and off since about 2013, uh, but it's been a few years since I taught it. Uh, so it feels very fresh and fun and interesting, and I'm learning a lot, even though I wrote it. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. I should try that. I'm having a lot of <laughs> light bulb moments. And that's because when you're practicing like this, when you're in this kind of community, when you're engaged in this kind of practice, things land differently. Uh, over time as your practice progresses, something you might not have been able to make sense of or feel or resonate with five years ago is kind of, you know, might really land differently or resonate strongly now. So that's kind of the fun of this practice is uh, watching, you know, what happens in the mind over the years of practicing and coming in contact with the same ideas in a different way again and again. <clears throat> and one thing that I, you know, that I, that I found myself saying on Monday was you know, that this, I've been in this community for a long time. It's 
I'll be celebrating 20 years in this community <laughs> uh, next year. And uh, that isn't where I learned to meditate. This isn't where I started meditating. But I found myself saying on Monday, uh, but this is where I learned to live. It's where I learned to train. And, and, I, and it, it made me think back to what were the obstacles that I was facing when I first started sitting in meditation, when I first came here, uh, when I first uh, encountered the Buddhist teachings. There were many, <laughs> uh, but in retrospect, one of them was that I didn't believe I was trainable. I really, you know, thought I was a lost cause <laughs> in my 20s already. <laughs> no changing <laughs> what I am. I was brought up by these people in this place doing these things. And, you know, I'm basically a, you know, nasty old woman already. <laughs> I didn't. We really have any kind of um, hope for my uh, potential to grow spiritually. And I, I, I didn't know that, you know, at the time I must have had some kind of interest, you know, or some kind of uh, <clears throat> uh, light. There must have been some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Like the Buddha says, um, you know, there's suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to search. So I must have somehow crossed from suffering that leads to more suffering <laughs> into suffering that leads to search, which brought me to this practice and then to this place. Uh, but I sort of, um, I, I realized, you know, looking back that I didn't understand that you could develop kindness. I didn't understand that you could develop compassion. I didn't understand that you could develop equanimity. I didn't understand that you could develop joy. I thought that these things were things that some people had <laughs> naturally <laughs> and some people didn't. Uh, so bleak, but I don't think it's that uncommon. Well, they got they got the joy genes, and I got what I got. <laughs> but then, you know, sitting and coming in to contact with the monastics and learning about all the ways that you can actually practice kindness and practice compassion and practice equanimity and practice joy and in practicing those things, they begin to develop. And uh, suddenly one day or somebody who has the joy genes, maybe that's the epigenetics they talk about. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's almost like, you know, the curtain raises. I realized that when I came here, you know, I didn't think I had a lot of potential and then in meeting the monastics and the community, I realized that, you know, these are just people. <laughs> and uh, I was just a person 
So there was something, you know, like he said, being born as a human, you have the opportunity to learn this stuff, come in contact with it, try it out for yourself. <clears throat> so my practice, I, I realized later, began to make progress when I developed faith in my ability to train, faith in my ability to develop these states of being. Uh, and then um, recognizing I am training. So there was this willingness to train. He asked, are you willing to train? I, re I realized I had a willingness to train and I wanted to because there was so much joy, you know, and the monks, of course, and the nuns, I just radiated this joy. I wanted that, wanted to train. I was willing to train. And then I realized that I was trainable, <laughs> which is a really big step. And then, you know, after that, I started training. And then I have to watch, you know, am I training? I'm in training. And what does that mean? You know, for me, it meant taking on the on the five precepts, the five goods precepts. Um, if you don't know what they are, it's a you know, refraining from taking the life of any living creature, refraining from lying, refraining from taking that which is not given. Uh, refraining from sexual misconduct and refraining from intoxicants. And so I took on the precepts in 2005 and my mind went, I don't want to train. <laughs> I was willing to train. Thought I was trainable. <laughs> Turns out it's kind of wild. <laughs> it's kind of wild up here. <laughs> but, you know, as he was saying, uh, the kapadam, the kapadam, the sila, the precepts are the foundation for training. The sika is uh, training, and padam has like foot is a foundation. So the foundation for training. Uh, so you know when I when I took on the precepts and I realized how wild it was, <laughs> I had to. Uh, I couldn't look at them. Uh, in an unskillful way. So it didn't help me to be like, I have to do this. I have to be like this. I have to get it right. I have to, you know, I can't mess it up. Instead, you know, what we're asked to do is look at what the mind's doing when we try to put a fence around it. You know, when we try to give it some boundaries, when we try to ask it to do something different, we're just watching and learning from the mind's own activity. <clears throat> you know, I mean, a really common example is you know, what to do with insects, right? Once you, once you get on the precepts and you can't kill any more insects. <laughs> I woke up this morning to a dream that somebody was swinging a spider at my face. That's, I've been up since like 445 because that was that. <laughs> like, okay, I'm out of bed. <laughs> I keep my eyes open. That's just a coincidence. But what do we do? And what do we do when we're faced with things that we are conditioned to think are wrong, bad, gross, ugly, dangerous, inconvenient? Now, a lot of us are conditioned just to kill those things. We're bigger. We're humans. 
We have fly swatters. Uh, it's what we were taught. I have a memory of a relative of mine when I was little picking up a daddy long leg spider and dropping it into a grill. Mm. Right? They didn't know. I might encourage them <laughs> bad karma. I didn't know. This is the thing. It was entertaining, I guess, you know, to watch this little thing burst in the flames. If I can still see it, I was eight or nine or something, and I can still see it. So even back then, it kind of gave me that feeling. Oh, I don't, that doesn't feel good. Now, so you start to, when you start to train with these precepts and this practice, you, you get a really good understanding of what feels right. You know, what doesn't feel right? You know, what kind of moves the moral compass? We start to see what is skillful. That's training. <clears throat> Another one, um, you know, to refrain from lying. It used to be translated to refrain from lying, uh, to refrain from lying. I have to take precept to refrain from lying and harsh speech. But that wasn't um, literal. That harsh speech, that's part of training around right speech. But the actual precept, like the moral precept, is to refrain from lying, uh, which is actually easier. It takes, I think it takes less mindfulness, you know, harsh speeches. That's a few lifetimes <laughs> of work, I think. Speech is hard. Uh, but to refrain from lying is a little bit easier. Except if you've been absolutely conditioned to lie <laughs> because it's convenient, because it's useful, because it comes in handy, because you don't want to hurt other people's feelings, because you don't want your own feelings to be hurt. Uh, a lot of us are brought up just like this. You know, a little white lie, a little white lie. When I started training, I realized that uh, I was a lying liar. <laughs> 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 when I was a kid, especially, I wanted to, I didn't want to get in trouble. I wanted to avoid conflict. I had people in my, you know, I had adults in my life that were not um, reliable in their reactions. So it was better to get out <laughs> from under the radar than to fess up. Uh, and I just used speech as a means to an end, really. I had trained myself to say whatever I needed to say to get whatever I wanted <laughs> or to get out of whatever I wanted to get out of. And then uh, I had kids and I realized that people lie to kids constantly. They just lie to kids all the time. And I'm not talking about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and all that, but more like, um, you know, <clears throat> um, to keep them from having big feelings. You know, or to keep the conflicts between parents and children uh, at a minimum. You know, we don't tell our kids where we're going or what we're doing or how we're doing it or what they, you know, what they don't know. And some things you have, you know, you obviously have to keep them age appropriate. But with my kids, you know, so I'd already started taking the precepts. Then I had kids. <laughs> I was like, wow. You know, I get it. I get why parents lie to kids all the time. It's really hard uh, to be honest and not be in some kind of a kerfuffle all the time <laughs> with them. 
but I learned some tools. So I had new conditions. I had to learn new, new tools. And those, uh, those tools, like my kids will ask me things that are not appropriate for them to know or that I can't talk about or that I don't need to or want to talk about. And so I say, I say things like, that's not my story to tell. Or uh, I don't know the answer to that. Or I know the answer to that, but I can't talk about it right now. Or um, <sighs> let's come back to this in a couple of days. Or um, along those lines. So it's there are ways, a lot of ways. <laughs> to, I don't want to talk about that right now crazy. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that right now. <laughs> so there are a lot of ways to tell the truth that are the truth that aren't telling the thing. Right? So we can be honest. There will be conflict. There will be pushback, whether they're kids or adults or bosses or people in authority. You know, there will be conflict. And yet we can stay with what is true. We can't talk about that right now. I don't have that formulated in my mind. I need to calm down. Let's put a pin in it. <laughs> People respect that. And it, it, I didn't know that <laughs> until I started trying it out. <laughs> and I respect it. You know, and then like the bigger practicing of right speech, you know, not engaging in divisive speech, not engaging in gossip, not engaging in sort of idle chit-chat, um, uh, not engaging in harsh speech. But those, I think, take a little, those are more refined, more nuanced. And um, how I would uh, practice with those is I would stop talking. I mean, some of you have heard me tell these stories, but you just stop talking. <laughs> and that would get really awkward. But you can really learn from awkward because it feels uncomfortable. <laughs> and so the more times you just stop talking in the middle of talking, uh, the more you, the more I felt uh, driven to get ahead of those words and to stop talking before I started talking. And so all of these ways of training um, are they can be interesting, they can be fun, uh, they can be exciting. I love to learn, you know, so trying new things out and seeing what my brain does with them that's fun for me. I enjoy that. Um, and keeping kind of this curiosity about training is really important, otherwise, it just it feels like a slog. So I'm going to end with another uh, part of this, this essay that talks about the, the benefits. So that's how maybe a little bit I talked about how to train or what you know attitude to take or what attitude I've taken. Uh, but then to think about the benefits according to the Buddha, well, pretty profound. And he says, one of the early recorded discourses of the Buddha is often overlooked. 
It is the teaching the Buddha gave to his son Rahula, who had been recently ordained and was still quite young. After Rahula paid respects to the Buddha and washed his feet with a dipper of water, the Buddha used a series of similes to teach his son about right speech. The Buddha pointed to a bowl with a little bit of water in it and asked, Rahula, do you see this bit of water left in the bowl? Rahula answered, yes, sir. So, little Rahula, is the spiritual achievement of one who is not afraid to speak a deliberate lie. Then the Buddha threw the water away, put the bowl down and said, do you see, Rahula, how the water has been discarded? In the same way, one who tells a deliberate lie discards whatever spiritual achievement he has made. Again, he asked, do you see how this bowl is now empty? In the same way, one who has no shame in speaking lies is empty of spiritual achievement. Then the Buddha turned the bowl upside down and said, do you see, Rahula, how this bowl has been turned upside down? In the same way, one who tells a deliberate lie turns his spiritual achievements upside down and becomes incapable of progress. Therefore, the Buddha concluded, one should not speak a deliberate lie, even in jest. It was after this teaching on right speech that the Buddha spoke on the importance of mindful reflection. Are the actions of body speech and mind wholesome or unwholesome, beneficial or unbeneficial? If there is a plan to engage in unskillful actions, we relinquish them. If we are currently engaged in skillful acts, we, unskillful acts, we stop immediately. For a long time, this practice was just stopping. <laughs> okay, I, I need to stop that. <laughs> I can stop that. <clears throat> when unskillful or unbeneficial actions are already complete, there is acknowledgement and the firm determination not to repeat them. So at every stage, we can notice is there unskillfulness here? What can I do with it? I can stop it. I can prevent it. I can acknowledge it. The Buddha is teaching us that we need to be able to apply the breaks, to relinquish our actions at whatever point we recognize them as inappropriate, unbeneficial, or unskillful. And stopping in the middle of a sentence. If that's where we are, when we notice we're awake, then that's where we're starting. That's where we're stopping. That's where we're starting. <clears throat> Another thing, and I'll wrap up here in uh, one sec. Another thing that uh, somebody said at the end of the beginner's class on uh, Monday was, he said, uh, yeah, I'm, I was surprised by the lightheartedness. <laughs> of this class. I didn't expect it. I didn't expect it. And, uh, you know, but the Buddha said a, 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 a happy mind um, is an easily concentrated mind. So everybody's, you know, they came to learn how to meditate, but it, we have to start by being happy. You know, and to become happy, we have to do good. And to do good, we have to train. 
So as we are looking down the road at our meditation practice and wanting to make progress and wanting to become calm and wanting to, you know, uh, collect the mind, you know, my, my experience is that it starts with training and goodness. <clears throat> I'll leave that with you. They say uh, in this tradition that uh, take, uh, take, take what you take what you need and leave the rest. <laughs> uh, so I'll just open it up for a couple minutes. Uh, if anybody has questions or or comments, and then we'll close with a chant.